The whole point of video games is that they are fun. So how did Electronic Arts grow to become one of the biggest players in the gaming world and yet was voted the worst company in America? Why did Challenge Everything become Milk Everyone Dry and has it made any difference to their bottom line? Today we're going to look at the innovative origins, bold decisions and later missteps of Electronic Arts. This video is brought to you by Squarespace, by far the best platform for making a professional website out of scratch. Sign up with the link below to get 10% off your first purchase. The founder of EA, Trip Hawkins, already sounds like a video game character, so it's no surprise that he ended up playing a huge part in the development of the industry. As a teenager, Hawkins loved board games and even designed one of his own, called Accustat Pro Football based around his love of American football. But whereas a regular kid might just cut up some cardboard and invite a few friends over, 17-year-old Hawkins convinced his father to give him a small loan of $5,000 and actually tried to put the game into production. He ended up making about 100 copies, but the game was a commercial flop. Nevertheless, it was an invaluable business lesson that would eventually serve him well. Later on, he studied at Harvard, where he majored in strategy and applied game theory. In 1971, he got to see a prototype computer at a friend's house, and that convinced him that computers were the way of the future. So he pursued a job at Apple, back when it had just 50 employees. There he learned everything he could, inspired by Steve Jobs' drive and ambition, but always with the knowledge that he was going to start his own business eventually. Four years later, when Apple went public, he cashed in his shares and set about creating Electronic Arts, which he founded in 1982. He started with 11 employees and $5 million in startup capital, including money from Don Valentine, the godfather of Silicon Valley who also invested in Apple, Atari, Google and YouTube long before they were household names. Hawkins played around with a couple of different names for the company, but the one he eventually picked is telling of his philosophy. To him, software developers were artists, not just coding monkeys. In fact, he even spent his time between leaving Apple and before creating EA to look at the music business and to study the types of contracts they had for their recording artists. You can see this reflected in EA's early releases, like Pinball Construction Set and Hard Hat Mac. Their big, colorful covers featured the name of the game designers, or electronic artists, written prominently on the front. From the very beginning, EA's motto was different from that of other game studios at the time. Instead of putting actual effort into coming up with good ideas, they let freelancers submit game concepts, and then EA would pick the ones they wanted to work on, just like a Hollywood movie studio selecting scripts. EA managed the development of each game as if it were a movie, rather than a traditional piece of software, by focusing on the entertainment and the audience. They ran multiple projects at the same time so that if a game or two sucked, all EA needed was a good one to cover them up. For the most part, and this is still true today, an independent developer or development team would create the game and then EA would publish it. Hawkins really believed in games as a source of entertainment. He wanted society to break out of brain-dead television and to embrace the interactivity of games by connecting with others. Although, don't ask your average Call of Duty player how that worked out. In 1983, EA stumbled upon a formula that would later allow them to totally dominate the world of sports video games. Game. Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one, -on -one, 
was a basketball game, but by tying it to real-life players Julius Irving and Larry Bird and getting them to help with the development and marketing, EA drew on a powerful idea that everyone aspired to be like their idols. If you were shooting hoops in the playground, you didn't want to be yourself, you wanted to be like Michael Jordan or Shaq. Or if you played Dungeons and Dragons, you weren't imagining yourself out there battling evil, no, in there you could be like Robin Hood or Gandalf. So when you picked up a game with one of your real-life idols on the cover, well, that was a chance to bring your dreams to life on the screen. If you go to a game store now, you can see how successful this idea was, with the faces of famous sports stars peering out at you from the shelves, from Tom Brady on the Madden 18 cover to German soccer player Marco Reus on FIFA 17. The Madden series was released in 1988, after a long development. In order to get the legendary coach John Madden on board, EA agreed to make the game as realistic as possible, in accordance with his immense knowledge of American football. So far, the series has about 30 versions, and a new one comes out every year with an updated roster and slightly better graphics. This method of producing games with no real changes whatsoever has inexplicably brought in $5 billion. Of course, EA have covered a whole range of other sports too, from hockey and tennis to golf and many others. All of these titles were put into their own division in 1991, with the creation of EA Sports, which quickly bought up the official licenses to many leagues and tournaments so that only its games could have the official players. Aside from celebrity endorsements, another key to the success of EA was their persistence in cutting out the middlemen. Rather than handing their games over to distributors, EA went directly to retailers in order to keep a bigger percentage of the sales. They made great deals with Walmart, Target and Toys R Us, which gave them noticeably higher margins than their competitors. When the market for games consoles began to grow, publishers had to take on the cost of making expensive game cartridges. This made it harder to release a game on multiple platforms, since you weren't just dealing with the compatibility of the software, you needed completely different manufacturing as well. Thanks to their good deals, EA could afford this more expensive production, and releasing on multiple platforms has now become a key strategy for them. That's one of the reasons why EA would not work with Nintendo back then, because they wanted games exclusively for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Instead, EA took a gamble on the new, not-yet-released Sega system called Genesis, which was twice as powerful as most other machines, particularly the NES. The gamble paid off, and by 1991 the Sega Genesis was a shining success, largely because of the popularity of the growing number of EA sports games. Hawkins eventually resigned from the board in 1994 to pursue other projects. The company, of course, grew without him, thanks to its sports titles and a number of movie tie-ins, such as Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter and James Bond. But along the way, as EA grew ever larger, they embraced a strategy that is one of the main reasons they are now infamous within the gaming community. Rather than simply publishing the games the developers made, EA started buying all of the developers themselves. They acquired Maxis in 1997, taking control of the SimCity series and eventually running it into the ground. In 2007, they bought Bioware and their hugely popular Mass Effect series, and then they ran that into the ground as well. At least they haven't wrecked Star Wars Battlefront yet. 
EA's list of acquisitions goes on and on, however, and what they often did after buying a studio was to shut it down. Pandemic, for example, was closed just two years after purchase, with EA retaining the intellectual property, of course. A lot of EA's releases now are simply rehashes of all of these titles they have acquired. Fans feel like there's no real development happening, merely a few updates and name changes so they can market the same product all over again. Just look at the never-ending list of Madden and FIFA titles. In the past, a lot of innovations came from the smaller studios, but now that's far less likely to happen after so many have been assimilated. EA have also had to adapt to the influence of the internet. Now, for example, they aggressively push multiplayer modes in all of their games. The trouble with online multiplayer is that you need to host it, which is pretty expensive. Players have bought a game on the promise of online multiplayer, and then after a couple of years, EA shuts down the servers, and they basically can't play the game anymore. Even for the big games, where hosting is supposedly going to last indefinitely, players often need to buy online passes, which greatly adds to the cost of the game. Another notorious EA strategy has been to release tons of downloadable content, or DLCs, at a pretty significant price. Mass Effect 3, for example, was released at $60, but alongside its launch was a crucial DLC that cost another $20. You didn't have to buy it, but if fans had followed the series so far, they definitely wouldn't want to miss out. To be clear, this is certainly not a problem that is unique to EA, but industry leaders should always be held to a higher standard. The CEO for most of this negative period was John Ricciatello, and he was eventually removed in 2013, perhaps to keep the fans happy, but probably for another reason. Even though EA was pulling in billions in revenue, Ricciatello lost money for four years in a row. The CEO change really worked. EA went from an $8 million profit in 2014 to $875 million the next year. Their success hasn't quenched their thirst for money, however, and when you look at some of their latest releases and the unstoppable flood of DLCs, it's hard to argue that EA is in it for the art and not just the money. Of course, the sheer scale of most of their games will likely keep the fans coming for a long time, the hype around Battlefront 2 being just the latest example. But if EA really want to improve as a company, they're going to have to stop squeezing their customers out of every last penny. Right now, EA release half a game at full price and then charge the same or more when they release the rest of the game as downloadable content. That might boost profits on the short term, but it's absolutely not the way to build any sort of loyalty with the players, and if EA don't improve their behavior, their reputation will eventually catch up to them. Our reputation is important to us here at Business Casual, which is why we are finally building our own website. This endeavor seemed daunting, especially considering all the features we've got planned for our site, but to tell you the truth, it has been surprisingly easy thanks to Squarespace. Their all-in-one, award-winning platform truly lived up to its reputation. They've got over a hundred beautiful templates, which are perfect for any fan site, blog or business website you may want to build. There is no need to install, upgrade, or patch anything, ever, and that's why we're building our website with Squarespace right now. If you visit squarespace.com businesscasual, you'll get 10% off your first order. 
In doing so, you'll not only be on your way to making an exquisite website with minimal effort, you'll also be helping to support this channel. Of course, I want to thank our patrons for supporting us, and to you for watching. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay in touch, and as always, stay smart.